One of the amazing things about hosting a podcast is seeing the, the listener response uh, of watching it grow. And we now have downloads on five continents, which is just mind blowing to me, completely amazing. And I get really excited. The idea that the, the thoughts that we're discussing, the lessons, the lessons I'm learning, the lessons you're taking from the guests really resonate, not just in the US where I'm located, but around the world. So big shout out to listeners in France, in South Africa, in Australia. And in fact, today's guest is from Australia originally. She grew up there. Her name is Joe Miller, and she is a leadership expert, author, and self-described newly minted 50-year-old, which she talks about. But she joins me to discuss inspiration from both her parents completely rebooting their careers in their early 50s. The lessons from her book, Woman of Influence, Nine Steps to Build Your Brand, Establish Your Legacy, and Thrive. The idea that you're already a leader, but which of the five types of leader are you and how can you use that to your advantage? We talk about what your brand is and how do you build it, as well as the importance of taking risks. Now, I've known Joe for a little while now and always come away from our conversations a little more fired up and a whole lot smarter. So you can learn more about her, get a free chapter of her book at joemiller.com. And of course, as always, if you love this episode, please share it with others and also leave a review at lovethepodcast.com forward slash midlife mastery. And now let's get started. Welcome to Midlife Mastery. This is Brock Edwards and today's guest is Joe Miller. So Joe, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Oh my gosh, that, wow, that question, you hit yeah, me Yeah, we jump that. right in with the big questions here, Joe. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you know, since we're all about midlife mastery here, I am a newly minted 50-year-old as of just a few weeks ago, so there's that. Happy birthday. Thank you, thanks. Yeah, you know, we're still within the margin of error there. It's three or four weeks, but I think in the, the context of 50 years, it's pretty much just a rounding error at, at this point. So newly minted 50-year-old author of the, the recently published book, Woman of Influence, Nine Steps to Build Your Brand, Establish Your Legacy, and Thrive. And aside from that, someone who in, in any other year would be traveling around the, the country and around the world, speaking at conferences and speaking to groups with a real passion for women's leadership. But given where we are at, at this moment in time, doing a heck of a lot of Zoom and unfortunately WebEx, Microsoft Teams and the occasional Google Hangout as well. So we, you've actually given us a lot to talk about here, Joe. So women's leadership, the book, Woman of Influence. So, all right. First off, I, I've got to ask, because my understanding of writing a book is it's one of those things that's better to have done than to do. Like it is a tough, difficult process for, for a lot of people, the way it's been described to me. So what inspired you to write a book? You're, you're absolutely correct. It is far more fun and interesting, and life is just a heck of a lot easier when you've written a book versus are in the process of writing one. So what inspired me was a, a bunch of life experiences. So early on, I was, I, I guess, the, the, the target audience for this book, that woman with a lot of raw ambition, 
not necessarily a, a lot of polish in executing against that ambition, who was struggling to find a, a, a way, you know, to make a way for myself and my career. I wanted to advance. I wanted to be a leader. And beyond that, I had not a, a, a single clue about how to make that happen. So this book is really that gift to my younger self and just so many of the women that I met along the way who were struggling with advancing or being the best kept secret in the organization or wondering what was putting a lid on their potential. Was it themselves? Was it the team culture around them? And so this book is not only for my younger self, but for so many of the women that I met along the way who who just wanted a step-by-step approach for unleashing their potential and, and becoming the leaders that they knew they were capable of being. Well, so along those lines, obviously you work with a lot of up-and-coming leaders, but from your experience, I, I mean, I, I know you can't really say what it's like as a, you know, over 50 woman in leadership since you just got to 50, but, you know, I, you must work with a, a lot of executives who have passed that mark or in midlife, you know, they had their ambition, they made it to the position. What are some of the challenges that those in midlife uh, you find are facing? Well, let's talk about that for a moment, because I think the assumption is that, you know, that so much of the population that I'm addressing and that I have a passion for working with early career are the youngsters, the up and comers. And, you know, that certainly holds true. I'm all about emerging leaders who want to explore their next leadership milestone and their trajectory, but it also encompasses women who maybe have done, you know, the the they've raised a family, they're at the empty nest point, they're exploring the last 10 to 15 years in their career, they're wondering what might be possible now that they have more time, more focus, how far can I go? So I'm always quick to correct people's assumptions that being an up-and-coming leader means you're a certain age or a certain level. And you asked about execs. I will be completely upfront in saying I have interviewed a a lot of execs, um, you know, over a hundred, probably more really seasoned, really successful women leaders and have learned a ton from them. And yet in my day-to-day work, that's typically not who I'm working with so much. So I'm trying to, you know, impart some of the knowledge and the processes and principles and and keys that I've learned from those uh, very successful women leaders, but bring some of that knowledge to the up-and-comers who are on their way. Well, midlife is kind of an interesting stage in that, you know, people have often arrived at whatever they were striving for in, in their younger years. Uh, some are will just continue down that path. Some are pausing and rethinking what they're doing, changing careers or directions or re-engaging differently, maybe a uh, different career stage. And I'm not sure what my question around that is, just because th- there's so much happening in midlife. You know, some people are coasting at this point. Some people have been coasting or like, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I've got to get back in the game. So I guess, you know, what's from your experience, what's your advice for those who are looking around trying to figure out, do I continue down this path? Do I take another path? Do I go find something else to do? Hmm. Good question. And, and so I, I, I want to address this term midlife as well, because it is a little bit weird coming up on 50 years old to imagine that this is middle age, this is midlife, because it somehow implies living to be 100. And I'm not 
sure that I'm completely signed up for that idea. So I don't know where where this term midlife came from. Maybe it needs a rethink, but I think we all we all we all get what it means and where you're coming from. So you know it's interesting. So why why do we find ourselves doing the pause, the rethink, the pivot? I, I certainly saw both of my parents do a, amazing career reboots right around age of 50 and it inspired me a whole lot. As I come up on on that milestone in life myself, I have a theory about this. This is going to resonate mostly with your female listeners. So right around the age when your ovaries stop producing eggs, I say that's a about when you run out of fucks to give. I hope I'm allowed to say that on your on your podcast, Brock. That's that's my grand theory of of midlife and and why we start to take a step back and pause and rethink and maybe align on a you know a better kinder trajectory for ourselves. Well, there there is something there. There is kind of a perhaps a freedom that comes from hitting a point in life when you're not trying to impress anyone else anymore. You've done that. You've accomplished enough you are maybe just tired <laughs> what, what, what whatever it is where you're just willing really able to step back and say yeah I don't care what other people think I'm going to go live my life now yeah and I think it aligns with you know an understanding of of what we're good at but also what we're not good at and maybe having some of the communication tools to say to say no and to step back from you know maybe something that doesn't feel like the ideal fit for us as well. Well so let's let's talk about a little bit cuz you mentioned your parents both both made career pivots around this point in life and to me that's kind of interesting because well I'm always interested when people do career pivots because there's obviously a lot of thought that goes into that or a lot of consequences that go into that. And I find myself kind of at this point where, you know, I don't know, I feel like I'm running out of runway a little bit. I know it's midlife and by, you know, my definition of midlife starting at 50, well, I'm at the early stage, but I certainly feel perhaps the burdens of life more than I did, you know, at 25. Yeah, I've got more bills to pay. I've got more people counting on me, more more responsibilities. It's not as easy just to go do something else. And so how did your parents shift? What was behind it? What, you know, what were they doing? Where did they end up doing? All the questions that go with that. You know, and it's interesting as I think about this, uh, and I'm gonna I, I, I'm I'm gonna make the assumption that neither of them are listening to this interview. So we we can get right down to the really, really <laughs> So I, I think for both of them, they lived the quintessential suburban Australian life, stayed in their lane, being the good. You know, my mom was was a school teacher and a librarian. My dad had been executive director in some health-driven nonprofits. And it may have just gotten to the point where their inner provocateur just stopped playing nice and people around them noticed and they were the quietly escorted <laughs> from, from their careers or, or just gently given a bit of a push and said, look, I think it's time for you to consider doing something else. And at which moment they both took leaps that kind of came out of left field and, and got into really passion-driven careers that for me as, you know, a youngster up and coming in my 20s at the time, 
looking back was really inspirational and and just formed so much a part of who I am and the career choices that I made, the risks I took at a fairly early age. So my dad started his own consultancy and became a speaker, very passionate, uh, very driven, possibly to the point of being the person at a dinner party who might rant at you about the importance of taking good care of your physical health later in life. So he now travels around Australia, giving very witty, fun, but but very informative workshops for often blue collar workers, men later in life, typically uh, on how to take good care of, of their physical health. So that was super inspiring and played a big part in me, you know, choosing my life as an author and a speaker. In fact, a quote that I that stuck in my mind, one of the few pieces of advice that I took on from my dad and really paid heed to was he said, if you can write well and you can speak well, people will consider you as an expert. So I became a speaker and an author, check, check. So hopefully (laughs) it's true. I'm seen as an expert, but very much inspired by him. Uh, So that was a huge part of me choosing my current career. And then my mom around about the same time when she just clearly was done after a long career of being a, a librarian for, you know, small school children, sold the sold the family home, put all her stuff in storage, packed up her car, drove across the country and took a course in teaching English as a second language. And after that intensive course, I think had that moment of, of kind of a freak out of like, oh, what the heck have I just done? So she and I sat down one evening, started browsing the internet, looking for all the amazing places in the world that might be hiring a newly minted, you know, graduate in teaching English as a second language, set off, sent off a handful of applications And Brock, the very next day, she had an offer and was hired to go to the Czech Republic. From there, she she lived in Poland and in Turkey and Morocco, Bulgaria. And so from her, I learned that sometimes you're going to take a risk and it's going to scare the pants off you, but you just got to roll with it anyway. Things will turn out okay. But really what I learned is that the world is an amazing place. And you you can get out and and see it as part of your work. So what made her get on that plane? And and, and I ask this because I, I'm picturing and uh, forgive me for for stereotyping, but I'm thinking of you know someone who's done a, a career in in schools librarian. And although I've not been to the Czech Republic, I have been to to Germany and other places in Europe, and I've been to Australia, and I can attest they're slightly different. And it's not home. It's, you know, more than a few hours from home. It's, it's not even, I'm done with this, so I'm going to get back in the car and return. That had to be, I, I don't know, I, there's a fine line between excitement and terror. I know sometimes they're kind of the same thing, but it's one thing to put in an application and kind of think, yeah, I'm going to go do this. And then it sounds like, you know, a very, very short time later at the airport boarding a plane. So what got her on that plane? Yeah. And, uh, you know, thinking back and this was quite a, a, this this was a couple of decades ago. And I know that she rode the emotional roller coaster every step along the way. But the real answer to your question is she had a signed contract. (laughs) So she had a contract (laughs) plus 
The backing of the British Council, which I think is, you know, the, the, the gold standard of a very stable, larger organizations with a global reach, with probably a, a well-functioning HR department and some healthcare benefits and a plane ticket back to the UK once a year. So that probably tempered some of the risk that she was, you know, being a part of this established organization. All right. And, and so she was out of, out of the UK then, not out of Australia. Did I get that right, wrong? Oh, uh, no, we, we were living in Australia at the time, but okay. she came apart. She, she signed on as an employee of a UK-based organization, which, ah. I, I mean, talk about taking risks. She eventually left the employment of the British Council to go be a little more of a freelancer. And I will just share that one of the, the stories of hers that sticks in my mind is when she needed to get root canal surgery in Morocco and found out when she was in the dentist's chair that they don't use an anesthesia in Morocco. Whenever I have something tough and scary and possibly painful to do, I think of my dear mom doing uh, root canal surgery, which she shrugs and says was was really no big deal. I'm not sure I can believe her on that one, but (laughs) she is way tougher than I am. I do know that. Wow. So that's really cool. So very, very different career directions, very, very big pivots. And it sounds like it, it paid off for both of them. And so I know you, you've you learned from them watching them. And I don't know if you've had these conversations with them, just given life ages then and all of that, but kind of what were some of their biggest lessons uh, leading up to and embarking on that journey? I don't know. And that is such a good question. And I'm going to have to check in and ask them. Obviously, it's not possible for me to travel home to Australia right now. Which, which is a little tough and heartbreaking. They did all put on a fantastic birthday party for me on Zoom just a couple of weeks ago. Oh, believe there was a wombat-shaped birthday cake. There were wombat-shaped dog biscuits for, for the pups. There were dancing wombat hand puppets. It was a wombat-themed birthday party. But now that that's all done with, I think it's time to get down to asking some of the really big questions like, okay, so what was that like and what inspired you and what have you learned? Well, let's apply this to your own journey. What's the next stage for you as you kind of think through these things? Oh, thanks. Thanks for asking. Look, I uh, what's interesting is um, inspired by their examples. I think I I did my intense period of, of, you know, breaking the career rules and taking the career risks at a relatively young age. It became a corporate escapee in my late 20s. And so the pivot that I'm going through now is a little bit more of a refinement. So not such a wild leap into the unknown because I, I built up that appetite and tolerance for risk taking early on. So now it's really just taking inventory of, you know, what do I enjoy doing the most? And I have narrowed down um, the number of different offerings that I, you know, that I, that I am, am offering at this point. I think the the whole COVID disruption 
to in-person events and speaking engagements and conferences has fast forwarded that a bit. It had been my plan to step away from offering like all day workshops for which I, you know, do the ticket sales and the registration and the marketing and, and really just focus on, you know, showing up to an event and being the keynote speaker or the breakout speaker. What's been fascinating about COVID is now that everyone is so Zoom fatigued that no one wants to sit in front of the the screen for an entire full day workshop. So there's been this kind of natural narrowing down toward, you know, the path that I'd hoped to to go on to begin with. And, And, you know, having finished the book is certainly helping me along that path. I will say it was a, a long-standing life ambition of mine to write a book, especially as the child of a librarian. I grew up surrounded by books. I'd always imagined that I would write a book. And my number one cheerleader when I got it done was my my mom, who was just so thrilled and, and so proud to hold that book in her hands. And so Having the book done at this point is really the culmination of a, of a big dream, a long-time goal. And so I, it feels like it affords me, you know, the opportunity to kind of relax and, and roll with it a little bit more. Let me ask, what kept you going while writing the book? Because I also know that, you know, you generally don't get paid while you're writing books. That's unless you're a full-time author. That's generally a distraction from the things that do pay you money. And I'm guessing just by the timing of the publishing and all of that, most of it was already written by the time COVID hit. So yeah, what what kept you going when you were writing that? Well, much like the reason that that my mom got on that plane to the Czech Republic, I had signed a contract and, and not only had signed a contract, had shared widely on social media that this was something that was going to happen. And so I think there was the whole like public, shame aspect of of not meeting my my deadline played into it so there was that fear that existential dread of knowing that there was a hard deadline well and 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 you know note to any current or aspiring authors there's always a little wiggle room in the deadline but not that much so i did overshoot it by a little bit but not by so much that i i publicly embarrassed myself and so i i would i thought going into this that i had about 70% of the book written but when i really sat down to dive into the manuscript it was probably more like about 40 to 50% so it was just the the hard slog of of getting through it but also the support of people all around me checking in to see how it was going and just the the excitement from people that I knew and and my wider network I at any time I felt stalled I would just reach out and check in with people and and they were just so thrilled and so excited to see this come for life uh, to come to life that that's that's really what kept me going Nice. I, I love the accountability that was built into all of that at all levels, you know, from, from from legal, financial to, hey, I've told everyone I know, like people are asking, is the book done? No, that that's awesome. And I, you know, I suspect that is, you know, a, a little bit of a secret to, to life and getting things done is to, you know, put yourself on the hook for it. It, it makes it a lot easier or at least a lot more motivating to, to get it done. So, I mean, we've kind of started off, we, we've had 
this theme of career kind of weaving through our whole conversation here. So when we think about being a, a, a woman of influence, and I know you can't distill the entire book down into a few sentences, but what are some of the key ideas or some of the key learnings that you've had that, you know, would benefit the people who are trying, who are just wherever they're at in their career, helping them ramp it up even more? I would say the core part of my philosophy is that we're all already leaders and and because leadership is an action, not a position. It's not about having direct reports and, and that what stops a lot of us from, from seeing ourselves as leaders is that we have this mental image of the people leader, the manager, the person who has direct reports and a team. But that was not my leadership style. So I thought for a long time that, oh, I'm not really a leader because I, I just, I don't have this drive or desire or possibly the skill to be a great people manager. And so I struggled, uh, uh, you know, for many years to figure out what type of leader am I? And so fundamental philosophy that shows up in the book is you're already a leader. Let's figure out what type of leader you are and own and unapologetically embrace your leadership strengths, but then figure out where does that match to uh, a role or a contribution or an impact you can make. So how do you map that to a career? And I'm sure that you and I talked about the three circles diagram in one of our uh, past podcast conversations, but it's understanding where, you know, imagine a Venn diagram with three circles. What are your strengths? And in this case, your leadership strengths, but what are you passionate about? about in your work. But finally, if you don't include the final element, which is what is it that there's an audience for that needs and values and wants that service, unless you are able to provide that valued service, then you've just got an expensive hobby, not a career. So I guide people through the process of understanding their innate leadership strengths, but then figuring out the superpower at the heart of that, where they can make a much valued impact doing work that they're passionate about while using their strengths and then really build a personal brand about that. So how does that show up in the results you drive and the impact that you make and how can you make a name for yourself around that? So a couple of questions come from, from that, Joe. First off, when you say oh, type of leader, what do you mean by that? I mean, my mind immediately went to all those personality tests where you're like an otter or a golden retriever or whatever. And I know that's not what you're talking about when you talk about type of leader. So, so what do you mean? So I've, through my research and, and, and analyzing survey responses from probably more than a thousand people who told me about their leadership strengths and their leadership style, what I call your leadership brand. I was able to narrow down to five core leadership types and of which people leader is only one type. So there's change leaders, people leaders, results, service, and thought leaders. But what often happens is, you know, we, we do people the disservice of letting people think that people leader is the only type of leader. So if you don't manage a team or manage an organization, then you don't have what it takes to be a leader. And what happens is people who aren't a people leader type feel invalidated, like they're not a leader, but then also people leaders don't know how rare and unique and special they are. So I encourage people to think of those five leadership types, which one resonates most strongly for you. You might also be a mashup as well. So I tend to identify with being a thought leader, 
and a service leader. Five types. Let me make sure I got these right. So people change, thought, service. What am I missing? Results. Results. Aren't they all supposed to get results? Oh, yeah, yeah. I see the results leader as being the person who strives for a high bar of performance, and they're very much motivated by going after and exceeding a a bar of results. You know, think someone who's in a sales role, for example, and often they lead teams of people where they motivate others to strive to deliver a a bar of results. All right. That makes sense. So how do people step into that, Joe? So, I mean, so if they've identified kind of what their strengths are, what type of leader they are, what they're passionate about, and hopefully connecting that to something that people want, that there is a a market for, is there a next step? I mean, that, that sounds a little too simple. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the, one of, there's there's a whole chapter in the book called "Go Big or Go Home," which is about creating career defining moments. And so, I encourage people to start to look out for, kind of scan their environment and scan their to do list for where can they make the greatest impact using their authentic leadership strengths and and that core leadership style. And, you know, it might mean looking for a leadership gap that needs to be filled or figuring out the big endemic problems that no one else wants to address, but you know that you were born to to fix and solve. But oftentimes those career-defining moments are stuff that's already on our to-do list. We just didn't pick this as being that impact that, you know, that brings out the best in me and showcases my greatness to the world, you know, has people kind of sit up and pay attention and see the leader in me. So oftentimes it's just about looking at what you're already working on and picking that, you know, project or opportunity that has the potential to be a real career definer for you. So I just encourage people to always be looking for, you know, what is what is it that you could volunteer for or raise your hand for or work on that is going to amplify your innate leadership style and strengths, but also show that you have the ability to drive really valued results. And if you make those choices consistently, you'll have a really remarkable career. Building on that, I want to ask about branding. So branding, I'm afraid, is one of these words that I feel it's like networking. Like at one point, it started with some sort of purpose, and then in everyone's mind, it evolved into something that it probably isn't. You know, Good networking is amazing. Most people think of bad networking. And so with, with branding, I can see people inter- either not knowing what it is or interpreting it as, you know, kind of a salesy thing that doesn't apply to them. But really, just for, for everyday person, what is branding? And and I kind of hear what you're saying, but not saying, which is it's kind of cheesy. And I agree. I completely a- a- agree. We need to rebrand branding if we can possibly right. do that. But at the core, you know, the way I understand it is it's, you know, how do people describe you when you're not in the room? Like, what do people say about you? Because, you know, you you don't own that. It's it's People have branded you in their own minds. And so what often happens is we have this brand that's built by by default, not by design. And it, it, you know, people's conception of who we are might be rooted in the, in the past. And so, you know, often we feel like, oh, I've grown, I've moved on, but people keep coming to me with these requests or roles or tasks 
that are exactly the type of thing I was super excited to do a couple of years ago. Now I feel like I've moved on, but no one can see it. And that's a clear sign that you've evolved beyond your brand. It's holding you back because that's how people perceive you. So my book, it, it kind of takes the approach of building and by design, not by de- default, to, to sort of to 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 carve out how you want to be seen and perceived by others. So I, I love that the distinction between design and default, because I think many of the places we get hung up is when we do things by default versus getting intentional about it, and, and a whole wide range of topics. But also, you made a nice distinction there that when, you know when you think of branding being cheesy is the idea, I think that we have to go create a brand and we have to invent something and all of that. But what I heard you saying is that we have a brand, whether we like it or not, like <laughs> we, people have their opinions about us. People think about us. Pe- we have a reputation and, and maybe reputation is a, a word that resonates more for, for some people than brand does. But, you know, we, our reputation is built whether we mean to or not, but we can get intentional about it. So sorry, I'm just kind of thinking through all of this and, and working it out out loud. But but so I, I like that approach that feels much more authentic than maybe some of the reputation that, that the word branding has or, or people might have about it. And I can also imagine people just like you're talking about people who say, well, I'm not a leader, even though they are. I can imagine people saying, well, you know, my job doesn't really involve branding. I don't need a brand. So the idea that, well, you've got one, so let's make it a good one for you. Let's get intentional and connecting that back to the career defining moments of getting super intentional about it. Well, all right. So we've been talking for a while and we have covered a lot of ground here, Joe. I mean, it's not often we have a whole conversation around people's parents as well, but I mean, we we brought them in so beautifully and they've obviously had such an influence on you and your career. What haven't we covered that, you know, what haven't I asked you about that I need to ask you about? I'm just going to spit out a favorite quote. We talked about my parents. We talked about how they made career pivots at, at a, you know, kind of midlife age. It inspired me to make a pivot and take some risks early on. I have a favorite quote from Nora Denzel, who sits on the board of directors for tech companies like AMD and Ericsson. And she says, if you don't take risks, you'll always work for someone who does. And I like to feel like I've I've lived the last two decades of my career in line with that. So I'll just throw that out there for anyone who's thinking of taking a leap and making a pivot. Maybe now's the time to embrace some risk-taking. Nice. Love it. I And well, where can people find you? Like, so we know the book, Woman of Influence. I imagine that's like Amazon, wherever you buy books, easy to hunt down. And, but if people want to know more about you beyond the book, where's a good place to track you down? JoeMiller.com is a good place. And in fact, you you can certainly go to the Amazons of this world. You can also, do people know you can call up your local independent bookstore and, and order a book from them? You can also grab a free chapter of my book. In fact, look at that. It is the, the very cheesy, the branding, <laughs> the branding chapter um, for free at JoeMiller.com forward slash book. Awesome. And yes, and thank you for the reminder about independent booksellers because they are awesome. And I miss bookstores. We don't have as many as we used to have and we need them. But Joe, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your wisdom and your insights around leadership and just how you're approaching your life. I love it. 